Broadcasting from New York City, be careful, Zeon and the Legion are marching down from Harlem <laughs> to Midtown as we speak. It's Matt and Brett Love Comics. This is Matt. And this is Brett. Uh, oh, we should really just change the show to Zeon and the Legion. Zeon and the That's Legion. It's a really good name. It is, but it's super obscure. I mean, not I yet. mean, obscure, not obscure for today's episode, but in are general, we, how do you search that? What, Falcon and Torque? Falcon and Torque? Is that because his name's Torque, right? Yeah, yeah, I, that would work too. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I Which like one it. of us is Falcon? I'm definitely Torque. You're definitely <laughs> Torque. Okay. I have a lot of theories about Torque that we will yeah. get to in today's episode. And I owned a bird once, so yeah, did it you? all works out. I did. Well, I had a pet. I had a pet parakeet when I was a kid. I named it Cannonball. Around. Oh wow! Yeah. After uh, Cannonball Run. After Sam Guthrie, yes, indeed. Oh, okay. Um, that was Burt Reynolds. No, <laughs> I was uh, smoking the Bandit. Was a little bit older. Well, I was I was wait, who was in Cannonball Run? Wasn't Burt Reynolds in Cannonball Run? Uh, great question. Uh, perhaps we could ask Make today's guest. Up. He may be able to elucidate on that uh, subject. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, joining us today for the podcast is uh, uh, a wonderful gentleman, a very funny guy in his own right. Uh, he is the proprietor of one of my uh, favorite wrestling organizations, uh, Chikara. Uh, please welcome to the program Mr. Mike Quackenbush. Hello, gents. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. I feel like I'm disrupting your program because I'm used to you saying in the beginning, we're here with comics to talk about comics, and I'm not really a comic. No, but, uh, but you're, you're a funny guy. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, and, uh, and you, run a, you run a great organization that has a lot of really fun, funny stuff in it as well. Well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, of course. So, um, first off... Do you remember who was in Cannonball Run? <laughs> no, and I, I don't know why, but I immediately thought that was a Jackie Chan film. Oh, uh, I went yeah. through a short period where I was really into Jackie Chan, but most of that info now is fuzzy. Sure. Uh, so I don't, I don't recall. He did Rumble in the Bronx. I know he did do Rumble, in the, Bronx, Rumble in the Bronx, which was shot in Toronto. Ugh, you can geez. see the mountains in the background, uh, <laughs> which I love. That was uh, Cannonball Run. Was Cannonball Run the... Burt Reynolds may have been in that. I think I know Charles Nelson Riley. Charles Nelson Riley was in the second one because during my mm-hmm. uh, game show network phase in college, I became very familiar with Charles Nelson Riley's filmography. You know, Brett, <laughs> a lot of other people have like experimental phases in college, and you're like, I had a game yeah, show I, network phase. I hosted game mm-hmm. show parties. I wore an ascot. I I bought nothing but vintage clothing. <laughs> Speak to me of the expanded work of Shadow Stevens. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, what is wrong with me? Um, Gene Rayburn. So, oh, uh, Mike, uh, a lot of the storytelling that you do with Chikara is is very similar to the sort of uh, longer form and um, and chaptered storytelling that we read month to month in uh, comic books in general. Is that is that sort of an influence on how you develop storylines for uh, for your organization? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I grew up reading comic books and being uh, a lover of the superhero medium at large. So even unconsciously, that was going to influence anything that, (laughs) you know, is my creative output, so to speak. And uh, this is no exception. So you'll definitely see uh, it's not just like fingerprints. It's very heavy handed, (laughs) the influence. Yeah, um, I I, uh, 
I listened. I loved your interview with uh, Colt Cabana on the art of wrestling. It was a really great, uh, really great talk, and uh, I loved the parallels that you were making, sort of with what Dan Slott was doing with Superior Spider-Man recently, yeah. and the uh, and the the fall and rebirth of Chikara as an organization over the last year. It is, and you had said this, and I would agree, it's one of the most ambitious stories I've ever seen uh, told across professional wrestling. How does it feel now being in what seems like the next chapter of that story, uh, having come through all of the, uh, all of the sort of blowback that you experienced with with fans being in the dark not sure what's happening and and uh, people sort of uh wondering now they know so so what's it what's it like being on the other side of that now it's a tremendous relief because not only did we have to deal with the fact that uh, some fans i think lost track of the narrative um because things were so mysterious we worked very very hard to make it uh you know, the, the closure of the company seeming entirely credible. And that period of time while the stage was dark in, in many senses proved to be, not just for me but for the performers, far more traumatic than we thought it was going to be. Um, it was extremely painful for us to go through that. And um, it was a necessary evil of the story we were telling. But I think going into it, we really didn't have a sense of what that was going to be like. And there at no point was the, was it designed to make our audience suffer, make us suffer. Um, it was it was crafted, really, to take everybody on an emotional journey, and I think we perhaps underestimated the, the gravity of the situation. Was there was there any anything that you could think of that happened during that dark period that, you, that came up and you thought, whoa, we did not anticipate that reaction or we didn't expect that to happen? Absolutely. Um, there were lots of places where... We would, for example, parse out bits of information by weeks, and we realized that the appetite from the audience was far more ravenous than we had predicted. And this thing that we thought, you know, we're going we're gonna to space this maybe six weeks apart, they really need this in about two or three days. And so the schedule began to accelerate. We had to become more reactive. This story incorporated elements of, like, alternate reality gaming at times, and uh, there were elements of that that had been because obviously an immense amount of planning went into this, that at a distance we thought we can plan it to go like this and like this and like this. But once we were in the thick of things, we realized, wow, the pace here is going to have to triple or quadruple because uh, we're really not meeting the fans' demand for this or for that. And um, it, it was almost like a daily thing where it was like, wow, we just did not expect this thing, this clue that we hit out there, they just solved it immediately, or um, those types of things. So it, it, was, uh, it had to become far more reactive, which is good. I think that was like a necessary thing that, this, that had to happen with this story. If we're serious about can we change the way that we tell stories in this performance art genre, like we must be attuned to that, that the audience can have some agency in what we're doing, and we must react to that. We have to change and, and, and respond to it in real time. And uh, while that at times can be a whole lot of work and it comes with uh, more than its fair share of anxiety, uh, it mm -hmm. was tremendous fun as well. Um, and you, you are a guy, and I mean this in the best way possible, you are a guy who is very protective of the story. Uh, you're, you care very much about... The uh, though it's a though though it's a fun heightened reality once you're within the story of Chikara, 
um, you know, you you seem to have a lot of care and respect for for the story itself and the idea of uh, of allowing people to still go on a ride with you as a storyteller. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you maintain that balance? Uh, it's it can be very tricky at times, to be sure. Um, I think what you're speaking to is the fact that we there, there's been a real swing in the professional wrestling performance art genre where if you go back decades there was like this ironclad sort of across the board hey what we do is real we are we're real tough guys we're real fighters not to say that there aren't real fighters or real tough guys in wrestling i don't mean sure. that but there was a need to protect the old carny conceit of what wrestling was like even if the even if the guys were at the bar together the heels still shouldn't be sitting and drinking with the faces and they shouldn't even be at the same bar like on the glow documentary yeah i watched that i that that's what they that's how they did that in vegas Mm -hmm. yes exactly (laughs) um and so the pendulum once was very far in in that direction and then it swung uh, especially when uh, Vince McMahon's uh, WWE needed in certain states to skirt athletic commissions had to testify that what they do is not sport and that's really where the new term sports entertainment came from um and so there became this period where it was like uh, everything is exposed uh, there's these documentaries that expose it there are these tawdry shoot interviews where people try to uh, you know out these things or what have you and uh there was this want to expose everything it was it was uh, more in vogue to expose and i feel like what i would like to see is for the pendulum to find a new modern happy medium and 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 that is this that um understand that we're in a fictional space and don't be ashamed of that don't be ashamed of the fact that you know a couple decades ago you used to have to sit around at thanksgiving dinner and one of your relatives would say do you do that fake wrestling uh like it's not 1985 anymore yeah uh no nobody is asking that no one in their right mind is asking that question anymore we exist in a fictional show space, and rather than be ashamed of that, let's celebrate it. I think it's not all that different, probably, what you see uh, in terms of improv comedy, that when there is that weird thing that shows up on the stage, let's celebrate that. Let's explore it. Let's heighten it. Let's go as yeah. far out there with this thing as we possibly can, rather than be like, oh, what's that turd you just dropped on stage? We're going <laughs> to run away from that. You know, you can't do that, right? Then then the audience is, that, that becomes the unusual thing, that you're ignoring it. Um, yeah. So let's let's explore this fictional space. That really intrigues me, and it again speaks to my love of comic books and the fantastic, and um, all, all those wild, wild elements that are out there. Um, I think you can do that and still respect what the audience wants from your entertainment form. So you don't need to go out there and constantly pierce the fourth wall or puncture the mystique or expose or out these kinds of things in a vain effort to make yourself seem cool or hip or whatever. No, be respectful of the entertainment experience that the audience is paying you for. This is what the paying customers want. In the, in the same way, I often use this analogy of the magician who at the end of his show would show you how all of his tricks are done. Um, that's, to me, a very revolting concept. I, I paid for you to create a sense of wonder in me with your skillful I- illusion craft. Like, that's exactly what I paid for. Don't ruin that for me then by saying, well, you know, I'd never really cut her in half. Here she is. Yeah. Um, 
don't ruin that for me. So I think there is a new happy medium emerging. I'm, I will force it to emerge. That's what I'm saying. I will force this to emerge. Let's be <laughs> respectful of what the audience wants. But at the same time, let's celebrate the fact that we're in this weird space with very few other performers, maybe limited to like the Globetrotters and Cirque du Soleil. And let's go as crazy far afield in this fictional space as we can. Yeah, and I, I think, too, when you when you limit yourself in that way, one, it, it almost comes from a place of fear, right? Like, you're, you're mm-hmm. almost anticipating that reaction that you had mentioned earlier, the the idea of someone looking down at what at, at your art form or your storytelling medium in a way that you're you're almost perpetuating the thing that you want to avoid mm-hmm. and yes. and i think leaning into it and and experiencing the fun and really delving into it i think um i think fun and like if you're having fun on stage or telling a story it's contagious it's infectious you your body language opens up your your voice changes uh even the way that you make eye contact with the people that you're engaging with uh changes like everything within the experience changes and when you do that you invite people in and i uh, that's sort of the thing that brett and i try to uh try to encourage at least as much as we can on this show to, to you know we may be sure comics may be a similar thing where like people may have looked down at it in the past but there's no reason to not love what you love yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Certainly, um, you know, when my dad was growing up uh, after in the wake of the publication of Seduction of the Innocent oh, and yeah. everything else, comic books were trash literature. You know, it was the kind of thing that you looked at and you threw it away the second that you were done with it. The idea that you would keep them or keep them in nice condition was <laughs> was crazy talk. Oh, yeah. You know, no, nobody did that. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, what I love about the space that we're in right now, uh, I don't remember. It might have been Pat Loic I heard say this, that. Um, Nerd culture is mainstream pop culture now, yeah. Yeah. which is a wonderful thing that the things that I, I feel like I grew up loving, like the comic book medium and superheroes at large, they are ubiquitous now. Um, the, I mean, look at the next eight weeks. Uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, X-Men Days of Future Past, all of those on the big screen. Um, I, I can remember there was a time to get excited over... <gasps> I think the J.D. Salinger's son is going to be Captain America and beat up an Italian Red Skull. Like, there was oh, a time man, when that, that was... movie? Yeah. That was all you had to get excited about for, like, two years until, you know, Dolph Lundgren became the Punisher or whatever. And um, now these things, uh, they are. They're ubiquitous and they're enjoyed by all. And um, I, I feel like we're in a really, really good space to be able to try what we're trying. It's also, it's a cool... Um... It also brings together, I mean, from my experience, it brings families together in a weird way. Like before, when I, like I've been reading comics for over 20 years now, and no one in my family ever wanted to really talk to me about this stuff. Uh, And now that they love these movies, it's now a way that I can talk to my family or Sebastian's family or, you know, I'm now like the guy that does this for a living. And so they're always Mm -hmm. like asking me about this stuff. Um I don't know. I think that's a very like nice thing to have everyone on this fun same page. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the fact that um, I am a lapsed comic book reader for the most part, and I like the fact that I can check in with my old friends, the Avengers, maybe once or twice a year, and yeah. see what they're up to. You know, uh, I wish that I was as good at keeping up with my high school buddies, but. Uh, <laughs> 
I feel very well, much... Well, they're not... Your high school buddies aren't published, like, 23 <laughs> times a month. Yeah, you can't... <laughs> you can't read them digitally. I don't know. That's true. I, mean, I, I don't know why Evan and John haven't thought about that. But um, <laughs> I feel like... Uh, I grew up with those guys. Uh, they, they, are, they are my friends. When, when they're... I mean, we all know what that's like when you've read a comic that, uh, you know, the portrayals are flat and all that type of stuff. I don't want to obsess on that. But when the characters are really well done, they, they really do take on a life of their own. Yeah. And uh, they, they are my friends from childhood, especially because some of the first comic books I had were Avengers comic books. Um, so I'll tell you this very quickly because it reminds me of something I heard on one of your previous episodes. I was bequeathed. Uh, a collection of Avengers, Marvel team-ups, and the 70s Marvel adaptation Star Wars books. Oh, yeah. And so those were like, the, that was the first that I was given, uh, you know, like a year of continuity together as opposed to a random detective comics that my grandparents Ooh. might buy for me or a one-off. Um, like I had a coverless DC Comics Presents that was Superman and Captain Marvel together. So I got to read the story in sequence for at least a year of each of those books. Um and and that that of course was very addictive in and of itself. But a lot of those characters uh, they, they they became my friends, and I like to be able to still check in with them from time to time, even though I no longer give them or their publisher four ninety nine a month or whatever the atrocious rate. It's four ninety nine. Four ninety nine. That's accurate. yeah yeah. <laughs> I will I will get you one day Diamond Distribution. I know this is all your fault. It is all your fault, Steve yep. Jeppy. <laughs> well, I mean. Uh... Today, you chose to read the Falcon miniseries from 1984. Was Falcon one of your um, friends? Were you one of your childhood friends? Uh, yes. I really loved... Uh, all my favorite Marvel characters are C and D listers. Oh, yeah. Um, my favorite X-Men is the Angel. Yeah. Um, I don't think uh, th- th- that comes up a whole heck of a lot. Um, the Falcon and Yellow Jacket are my favorite Avengers. Oh, um, nice. Like, I really like the, the, the lower-tier characters... And those rare instances, the Black Panther is one of my very favorites. So an interesting uh, through line here is Jim Owsley, yeah. uh, who later becomes Christopher Priest. And this Falcon series, I think, is one of his first published works for Marvel, if I'm not mistaken. I th- think that's right. R- r- shortly after this, he wound up writing uh, Power Man and Iron Fist, that, right? Like uh, after this, these, this art the, team. Yeah, that, yeah, I think so. Heads over yeah. there to finish that up, too. This yeah. is where he first meets Mark, later M.D. Bright. Yeah. Who he would mm-hmm. co-create Quantum and Woody with. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I really liked about this, the Falcon Limited series, and I went through a phase where um, the comic book store in my uh, neighborhood would oftentimes take you know, a four-issue limited series. I remember there was a 12-issue, like, Vision and Scarlet Witch one that yeah. seemed laborious. Um, and they <laughs> yeah. were all from roughly that same period. There was a Beast and Dazzler one. Um, there was an awesome Hawkeye limited series that um, actually was on shelves concurrent with this Falcon yeah, one yeah, for a great. month or two. It's really um, good. All of those, um, they would sometimes just collect them into, you'd find them in one Mylar bag marked at, like, a discounted price of, like, a dollar. Yeah. So you could get all four issues of the Falcon for a dollar. I think they were 60-cent cover price or something like that originally. And some of it is the writing, of course, but just that previous to this, the Falcon would oftentimes be limited to two sentences in an issue of Avengers. Yeah. Uh, and here he is. I mean, this is, it's all Falcon, and it's very realistic. It's very um, grounded, I think, when I maybe contrast it against some of the other books from 1983 or 4 that I was reading. It's it's very street level. It feels very real. And I think this is true of Jim Owsley, later Christopher Priest. Um, he makes 
African-American or just African characters come to life in a way that I think very few other writers do. And it's really true when he writes The Falcon and the Black Panther. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, yeah. And I'm also... I mean, I, when I was working for Splash Page uh, last year, I got to watch a lot of Anthony Mackie interviews, <laughs> who was playing the Falcon in uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier. And I... I don't know. I just I loved seeing his enthusiasm for playing this character because Anthony Mackie, as an actor, is very aware that Falcon is the first African American superhero ever. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Panther is the first African superhero. Falcon is the first African American one. And Anthony Mackie was like, "I'm so glad that I now get to play a character that my nieces and nephews and like people can look up to. They can dress as me for Halloween. Like to to be playing a black superhero in Captain America is so important to him and." I think that Christopher Priest writes to that. I think as a as a black writer, he writes with a level of authenticity and also knowledge that even the most well-intentioned like white guy writers like eh, you can't still. Yeah. <laughs> You're not writing from experience and there's just like a level that I I think I I, re I really like seeing that in comic books. That's my spiel. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like, um, I mean, Priest as a writer is always a guy who's appealed to me. His character work, his character work's solid, and he has every every one of his characters in, a, in any of his stories has their own voice. And Sam Wilson is a guy who, outside of the outfit even, has his own voice. It, even within this, uh, even within this miniseries, he screws up. I mean, he makes mistakes. Yeah. He's fallible as a hero, but he's a guy who continues to get up and keep trying to do the right thing. Uh, and I, I really like that. I think that's more admirable than someone who's always on that straight and narrow and is always able to do that right thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do like the way that they showcase his vulnerability at times, um, especially that, you know, the one plot that runs through them uh, with the Legion, the street gang. Um, the fact that he really does fail them uh, and yeah. the story of him trying to get to win back their trust and, and, and failing and failing and failing again. Um, certainly something that I think of uh, an adage from the wrestling world that applies to that character in this story and is probably what made the, the limited series so attractive is um, people do not always cheer for the guy who wins, but they will always cheer for the one who tries. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that is, in a way, the, what happens to the Falcon across these four issues. He doesn't always win. Yeah, and I also, I mean, like, the issue number one is a standalone issue that basically introduces you to Sam Snap Wilson's uh, status quo, uh, which I think is one of the most, I don't know, like, potent, rich status quos that any superhero can have. Like, he's a social worker in Harlem. He's the hero of Harlem. And in his day job, he's still a social worker. Like, he's still... He's still a hero when he's not in yeah, costume. and it's such mm -hmm. a cool setup that I can't think of... Like, no other superhero has that setup. That specific job of social worker in an area of a city that needs it. It's, it's almost like... A, and they don't shy away from it either. No. Uh, and it, it's, it'd be perfect for a procedural drama. Like, mm -hmm. it would be perfect for, like, a Netflix series. Like, mm -hmm. ugh. Um, in the first issue, we meet uh, uh, what is his name? The he meet, we meet a kid that Falcon is um, Miguel. Miguel, yeah, a kid who Falcon is basically like mentoring in a way. Like uh, Miguel, like he believes in Miguel. He knows that isn't he going to engineering school? He was. Is that him or is that that's a no no no, no that's, that's Zeon yeah, yeah, yeah. later in in the miniseries. But Falcon believes in him and sees potential in him. But like Miguel loves drinking, like he doesn't have a good life. 
He likes yeah. drinking, and it opens up with a character ab- about to rape his girlfriend, maybe? No, mm-hmm. not his girlfriend. Is that not a his girlfriend? A woman. Oh, that's yeah. just a woman? Because his a... girlfriend yells at him after he gets out of oh. jail. Sad. Oh. I mean, it's it starts off yeah, intense it's, it's immediately. The first page. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out the first issue of this miniseries drawn by future superstar Paul Smith, my favorite artist. Uh, mm. And it's gorgeous. the whole The whole miniseries looks great. This first issue is just uh, the lines are so clean and the composition's incredible. But yeah, it it, it starts out. Uh, that is that to me was very surprising, especially for an uh, an '80s book. Mike, when you first picked this up were you surprised by uh you know how like waist deep you are by page one in this miniseries yeah i mean they're showing a kid probably not much older than you were when you were reading this for the first time as an alcoholic <laughs> like mm-hmm. right and, and thank you for uh, reminding me that i was an alcoholic at a such a young age brett but uh <laughs> <laughs> that really those were hard times and we're getting into um, the deep stuff <laughs> that's why i came here uh, to have that conversation and later to talk about the flash but uh Great. on the on the on the topic of that it it seemed so real compared to uh what i was reading at the time like avengers or defenders which i read i read a lot or uh, marvel team up which a lot of times it was fun it was like a fluff kind of thing you would pop in hear these two guys of course they team up and it's over yeah uh this was very gritty and and it did it seemed very real uh, I think the fact, like you said, that they chose to make him a social worker, and then uh, they explain. I have the the actual print books from 1983. That's how I read the series. I don't know if if you guys read it digitally or how you might. No, have, they they um, just released a new trade paperback. This is the first time this has ever been reprinted. It just came out like a week ago. Yeah, mm. um, and it is gorgeous. It has it's basically like a good Falcon handbook. It has the four issue miniseries. It has uh, his the three issue arc he debuted in in Captain America in 1960. 19- 70 1968 i think yeah uh yeah it's really good so you should go to amazon.com through yep. our affiliate links yep. buy it give a little money to us but yes mm. anyway sorry <laughs> i had to get a commercial in i do like the smell of yellowed comic book pages oh yeah so oh, it's I, the best yeah i enjoyed flipping through it and um they explain there are some pages uh, in the back that are just like it's either jim owsley or i didn't realize until just this reading that larry hama was the editor on this Oh, so, yeah. oh, yeah, I see that it's, now. It's either Owsley or Hama's writing. They're just like some text pages. And one of them explains that, you know, the Falcon's identity is public knowledge. So everyone in his neighborhood knows that Sam Wilson is also the Falcon. That's not a secret. And I liked especially the scenes where he's he's doing his social work just wearing the Falcon costume. Yeah. You know, uh, he believes in this kid, Miguel, who's obviously in a bad spot. Uh, you really feel like the throes of desperation in their dialogue. Um, there's a scene later where he goes to meet with the gang, the Legion, like uh, around like a fire that they've started, and to, yeah. and to just talk to them um, in his costume. All of that struck me as being a very, very real and grounded, despite the fact that the Falcon does have kind of an outrageous costume. Uh, it is nuts. But <laughs> I, I do love it. Yeah, it's and, great. A nice deep neckline, some feather wings. Yeah, yeah. His, his original code name was Deep V. Yeah. <laughs> and that face sock that he wears is not attached to anything. Yeah. I don't know what that yeah, is, that but is... I love it. Yeah. And Anthony Mackie was super upset that they didn't put him in that. Really? He, like he said in interviews, every time, every chance he could get was, I just bulked up for pain and gain. I want spandex. Put me in spandex. Even <laughs> he was like, even the old orange and brown one or uh, orange and green one. Like, oh, give me yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
So yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really hoping that if if they get to continue with that character in the cinematic universe, like put some red in that costume or yeah. something. Oh, Come yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. Uh and I, I also like um I yeah, I love that like Sam Wilson as a character is also like it's kind of like an inspirational character, uh, mm-hmm. because like the parents of the girl that was getting attacked basically say like, if Sam Wilson believes in this kid, then we believe in this kid and we're not going to press any charges. Like, I love that. That immediately sets up Sam Wilson's reputation. Like he has a great reputation. Yeah. He's a guy that you look up to that you like. Yeah. I like, uh, I like that. He's a guy that doesn't stop trying to make a difference no matter what. Like you, how many other superheroes do you know that would have a sit down with a gang in their neighborhood? Like the Falcon does an issue two where he meets with the Legion and has, con- has off panel convinced them to stop fighting each other and start just keeping watch over their neighborhood and protecting yeah. their own. And he, they ask his permission to wa- have a solidarity March in town wearing their colors. Yeah. And he gives them the okay because he knows that they're not going to start anything as long as he's there to help them keep it peaceful. But he can't because, he of, can't. because of weird Marvel continuity that they've since erased. <laughs> right. Now, I'm aware that sometime after they established this, and, and to me, this is Falcon canon. These four issues, everything yeah. I've ever wanted to know about the Falcon are here, including yeah. the fact that they established clearly that he's a mutant. Yeah. Um, they talk about the fact that Professor X um, discussed with him the psionic link that he has with Red Wing and all this other type of stuff. Uh, maybe technically bird empathy if we're going to get out our 20-sided die and <laughs> like talk it. about how that fits into our RPG. But um, <laughs> bird th- apparently empathy. that's been... <laughs> Is that what I got? I got bird empathy? Um, I got bird empathy. Okay. Can I ask but they've like, this, right? They got rid of it. He's no longer a mutant? No, yeah. no, no, no. We're using the old source book. We're using the old source book. <laughs> At some point, they... I mean, this is the thing that... I mean, we can dive into this. My my only complaint about Falcon is before I read this miniseries and before I did some research on him for some articles I wrote, I thought he was a straightforward character. And then I realized that there's this whole thing with him originally being like a pimp and a gangster and then the red skull manipulating him with the cosmic cube in order to make him more appealing to captain America. So he would take him on as a partner and that's where his whole social worker personality comes from. Yeah. And then like this mini series and then some of his stories afterwards are him like trying to reconcile. It just like really bummed me out that they couldn't just have like a heroic African American character that is a social worker. That is like a good guy. They had to throw in. Oh sure. It's all I think it was all like Steve Englehart doing revisions during um his run of Captain America. It's like no 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 no. He was originally a gang member and a rate and uh, a pimp. Like oh, no. no, come on. So I mean like how I mean how does how does that make you feel, Mike? <laughs> well, I guess to an extent I I choose and pick. Yeah. To me this limited series is the Falcon. Yes. Um when he shows up and he's been changed or tainted or whatever this is the definitive falcon to me and the others are just it's like a cover band um you know uh, if i wanted to hear separate ways i'm probably going to listen to journey play it and that's not to say there isn't a whole bunch of cover bands out there that also play separate ways but um this falcon limited series to me is the canon what's interesting is later uh, like in the black panther run that priest does many many years later which to me is also the definitive black panther run and this is coming from someone that grew up loving the crazy jack kirby 
Black Panther from the <laughs> oh, late 70s. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the very, very heavy inks and a time-traveling frog and no end to the craziness. Um, <laughs> that Christopher Priest Black Panther run, I think, is masterful. And I, I felt like the Falcon that exists there, and that's, you know, not to say we should ignore all the trials and tribulations that the character has gone through in the intervening years, but it was like a much darker, edgier, angrier Falcon that turns up in that version that he writes. And even that, to me, was like, this doesn't jive with the Falcon that I fell in love with, which exists exactly in these four issues, and sometimes no, nowhere else. It's not, if you read, you know, around the same time, he had just left the Avengers a couple years previous, after like a, a worthless run in that book anyway. He was so underutilized when they had him in the Avengers. And isn't that why he left the team? I read that on Wikipedia. Like, he was hired on the Avengers by Gyrick to be a token black member, and he was like, fuck that, and left. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. <laughs> there really are like issues of that, which are gorgeous. They're George Perez um, pencils on those Avengers books yeah, where man. he shows up. But like sometimes it's a whole issue and he's got like one word balloon. Mm. Like uh, he he was token in the story and uh, in terms of the plot and everything <laughs> yeah. else. Like you on. said it. Falcon's one line. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. Go Cap. Go um, Cap. So uh, there were other books. I, I would buy books just based on the Falcon showing up. There was, after the time, uh, Mark Wade and Ron Garney had this awesome Captain America book, and you'll have to help me fill in the blanks here. Yeah, um, it was like 1996. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. before Onslaught. Yeah. Like they I- had an awesome run. And to me, Captain America was always corny. Um, the the top-tier Avengers, for, for the period of time that I was reading the book, they were really corny. Um, I did not like Cap. I did not like Thor. I did not like Iron Man. And I didn't, like, didn't really like the Wasp either. But yeah. I did love Yellow Jacket and Hawkeye and the Vision and the Scarlet Witch and all, and all the other, you know, BCD tiers. All the way down, didn't like Tigra, but did like a lot of the other ones. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I'm sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought there, what I was talking about. Oh, the Ron Garney, uh, Mark Waid, Captain America run. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, that made me love Captain America. And then that book got interrupted or canceled, and then it came back, I think, as Captain America and the Falcon. Well, yeah, um, it came back, uh, it got interrupted for Onslaught, and then Heroes Were Born, where they handed it over to Rob Liefeld. To Rob Liefeld. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you pronounce, that's how it's pronounced, yeah. by the way. And then mm. when it came back in 97, it was Ron Garney and Mark Wade again. And then Garney left, and it was Andy Kubert, I think, took yeah. over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Christopher Priest came on in about 2005 and did Captain America and the Falcon with i can't remember who the artist was on that it, was, uh, it started with bart sears okay because everyone looked oh, i remember like, those covers yes yeah oh yeah everyone looked like they had spent like six months training <laughs> in gold's gym to be power lifters if you thought rob liefeld brought the extra triceps just wait till bart sears gets here <laughs> yeah yeah they they have uh uh, uh sexceps it's like double <laughs> triceps <laughs> but i remember that he had um uh, I remember reading like an essay that Christopher Priest wrote about writing Captain America and the Falcon and how he he quit the book because of it being like constantly under threat of cancellation or mm-hmm. other things like that, right? Yeah, and um, it's interesting to really dive into some of – I didn't realize how political Christopher Priest was. I found oh, a yeah. blog of his a couple years ago, and I found it a little off-putting, um, the fact that uh, it was as political as it was. Um, while I enjoyed the political underpinnings that, I mean, they're not as pronounced in this Falcon Limited series, but they are there. He is obviously making certain types of commentary uh, oh, about yeah. all kinds of things I'm ill-equipped to discuss. And 
but we're going to anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And and in Black Panther, he definitely does. Like he really runs with that. Um, But uh, reading some of his essays and things kind of kind of put me off him. uh, Whereas I went through a long period where I felt like uh, this is one of my very very favorite writers, and I would pick up virtually anything that he did. He did a book called The Crew. Yeah, um, where uh, I, I did not like the art. To me, the the art was uh, a little repulsive to my eye. And the collection of characters, I was like, I like some of these characters, but some I don't care about at all. But it is Priest, so I'm going to buy it. Yep. Um, and then upon discovering his blog, I was like, wow, this guy's got a lot going on, and I don't know that I'm down with all of it. <laughs> yeah, he um, he maintained that blog for a long time, and it was the he had no fear of discussing his anything that had happened basically in his career and some of the stories that he revealed on there were like shocking mm-hmm. um like a lot of the stuff like he was editing web of spider-man at the time yeah like in the early 80s and was uh was the guy that gave peter david his big break yeah because mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it was peter parker that he was editing at the time but like no one would hire the guy out of marketing because he's a marketing guy. Yeah. And marketing guys shouldn't be writers or whatever. <laughs> and he was the guy that was like, no, let's let him try this. Uh, and it sounds like he did a lot of that and ruffled, uh, pardon the pun, ruffled a lot of feathers. Because he's the hero Falcon. <laughs> yeah. I he... <laughs> got it. I got what you did oh, there. I see. <laughs> I see what I did there. Um... Well, I mean, there are some political things in this one. Uh, the Xeon and the Legion stuff. Um, because what we got sidetracked on earlier was, in order he's trying to go, he has to show up at the Solidarity March. Because otherwise, like, Torque and the police officers are going to flip out when they see the Legion marching down in their colors. Uh, and when the Falcon's on his way there, he gets uh, attacked by a Sentinel. Yeah. Um, just a good old, good old-fashioned Sentinel. This is an issue of the Sentinel chasing him, and he knows he has to get to Harlem, but he can't, and he's too late, and a full-on race riot breaks out. Yes. Like, like for real, like, someone gets shot and killed. Yeah, one of the Legion gets shot and killed, one of Zeon's best friends. And, and he's holding his, uh, MD Bright is drawing this page. Um, okay, question about Zeon. Is he wearing a tiara out of respect to Luke Cage? <laughs> like that's serious like that's what i would wonder when i saw that he's wearing like a silver tiara i wonder and, how much of that is foreshadowing how long after this did uh he go on to power man and iron fist is it like it immediate oh yeah, yeah because uh power man and iron fist i think was canceled in late 85 so i think they may have had just like a year run oh, yeah. on it so shortly after this right because that's hmm. the only reason why i could ever see anyone wearing a silver tiara i don't know <laughs> that it was ever fashionable no mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it ever was. I don't think so. I, I gotta wonder if it's not, uh, I mean, this is an even stranger thought, but that it's got something to do with Wonder Woman, and the only reason I say that is, there are two really strange references to Batman uh, in this book. Yeah, there are. From a time period where, beyond like a Stan soapbox wink-winking to the distinguished competition, that sort of thing never, ever occurred, to the best of my knowledge. Doesn't Tor- like, Torque mentions Batman. Doesn't mm-hmm. he like? Yeah, yeah. He, he taunts the Falcon, saying like, "Aren't you going to hit him with your batarang?" Uh, <laughs> oh and then, yeah. Then later he's like, "What were you busy catching the penguin?" Yeah, and I, yeah. And I was, was reading these, and I'm like, "That's really strange." <laughs> well, I've always operated under the notion of like all of DC exists in the Marvel universe's comics, and all of Marvel mm. exists in the DC universe's comics. What's What's that interesting to me too about Torque's comments there, specifically about that, is like he knows batarangs and he knows he knows the penguin, but then. 
Captain America shows up in issue four. <laughs> he has no idea who Captain America is. <laughs> the fact that he calls a major victory, especially because I yes. love Justice League International. Um, yeah. Like uh, there was there was more layers to that joke for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, when Zeon's friend gets shot by by a rookie cop, yeah, uh, he Zeon's cradles his body and screams, "This is you, Falcon! You did this!" Like it's so intense. It's super intense. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting too. The I had forgotten about the mutant thing, and then when it popped up in the miniseries here, it all came flooding back, and I was like, "Oh right, I feel like I feel like that was a marketing attempt." Yeah, because the X Men were this was right after they were pretty. Yeah, they, they were, were getting, white hot at this well, this time. See, they were yeah they were on their way there. This no is, way, this is right after burning Claremont. Yeah, this is Cockrum. I would love to know, like, in-depth sales stuff. Just because I personally find Cockrum's second run to be a little bit lackluster. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I wonder if, like, sales went down. Because there's, like, some weird, boring stuff in that, like, 145 to 165 stretch. Yeah. Because um, right after this is when Paul Smith, who started on this, goes to Uncanny X-Men. And that's when you get... Second half of the Brood Saga, Professor Xavier's a jerk, my favorite stuff ever. Um, but yeah, they, they were definitely trying to align Falcon. This is like how they made Namor um, like retroactively the first mutant in yeah. the early 90s. Right. Yeah. I so, did like how they sometimes randomly assembled teams, though. You know, like they tried to... Why, why are these guys the defenders? And maybe they were thinking like, well, if we don't have anywhere else to put the Falcon... Oh, yeah. You know... Yeah. If the if the angels off and the defenders, who's got wings? Let's uh, get get the <laughs> falcon. The there we go. There. Yeah, I do like that when the sentinel uh, rebuilds itself in the junkyard. There's an editor's note saying, "No kidding, they really can reassemble themselves." See X Men number fifty nine. If you don't believe me, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that 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 was almost that makes me wonder. Like, did Jim Shooter tell Larry Hama he didn't believe that? And then Larry Hama was like, no, it happened in 59. And that is like a direct comment yeah. to his boss. <laughs> um, one thing about Sam that we've sort of mentioned and, and have been thinking about since we've mentioned it. I mean, he is. He's a hero in the costume and out of the costume. He's a guy who doesn't turn it off. Yeah. It's, he's never off. And that has to be exhausting, right? Like, he doesn't give himself any downtime. Well, I mean, we see him in issue two. He tries to sleep, and Officer Torque comes in there and bangs on a pot, <laughs> a stir-fry pot. To, That's true. Which Sam asked for, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they do set that up, though. They talk about, you know, the, the Falcon's been awake for the last 18 hours, and he spent yeah. seven of them at uh, a crowded office uh, with no air conditioning. And then he spent the last couple of hours dealing with gang wars that the Legion are starting in retribution and blah, blah, blah. So... Um, I think that's a that's part of his story by by design. Yeah, I, I'm I'm watching Scandal right now, and yeah. I actually think Sam Wilson might be the predecessor to Olivia Pope. Anyone else watching Scandal? <laughs> Sorry, uh, oh, no, because like that's what you guys just said is exactly what Scandal seems like. Because it's like Olivia Pope is just like 24 seven solving problems, getting shit done, yeah. and I like that take on Falcon. Like I like a guy who is always getting things done. Well. Mike, as a, as a guy who who runs a successful uh, professional wrestling organization, do you I ever... I trust there were air quotes around that keep going. Oh, come on. No, there were actually hand gestures for emphasis. It was yeah. the opposite of air quotes. <laughs> um, 
do you ever find yourself in that sort of situation where you there's so much to do that you have a, a hard time separating or turning it off for a moment or uh, do you ever find yourself in those sort of falcon situations where you've been up for 18 hours straight trying to put out fires across the city? Yes. How? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, how do you? Yeah. Uh, how do you de-stress? How do you maintain a, a, a balance? Is it? Uh, how hard is that? Well, the great thing about comic books. Um, the escapism of it, even if you can only go and visit that universe for a little while. Um, and, and it was really nice that I had to put time aside in my schedule to read these four issues or they would not have gotten read. Yeah. Um, even, even though, um, you know, I had recommended it and I thought this, w- this would be fun and I wanted to read it. If I didn't block out time in my schedule to read these four issues, it, it simply never would have gotten done. Um, it can be a lot of fun to go and visit that. It was largely due to a discussion that I heard you guys having about superior foes of Spider-Man that got me to try that book. Yeah. And uh, that was a fun place to escape to for a little oh, while yeah. as well. It really reminded me a lot of what I loved of the um, the Injustice Gang, I believe they were called, the Justice League Antarctica group. These kind of uh, bunglers that were um, the underneath players in the Justice League International run that Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMattis did. Yeah. And it it reminded me a lot of that, even though I don't know if they still do stories with those characters or not. I'm completely removed from what DC's doing right now. But um, visiting characters that were akin to that, it was. It was kind of like palling around with old friends, like, I kind of know what you guys are about here. (laughs) And uh, I do kind of remember you from all those awful, spectacular Spider-Mans I used to read and everything else. Um, So that escapism can be very, very important, even if it's, it's very brief, you know, to sit down and read a comic from cover to cover might only take you 10 or 15 minutes to do. So, but it can be really important to get out of your head in that way, um, to to just not to not be in your head. I, I that probably sounded more improv-y than I meant it to, but uh, along those lines, I mean, thinking about wrestling and what that allows, like when when you when you're on stage and you invent a character for a scene or a sketch, um, or even if if you, you know if you do stand up and your and your stand up persona is not really you but a, an affectation, the same yeah. can be true of uh, putting on a mask. Uh, obviously, that's a more direct parallel, I think, between what we do at Chikara and Comic Bookdom because we have so many masked characters. But um, that is a real release. Um, if you came from, you know, if we had someone that had a, a backstory similar to Sam Wilson's that, you know, they're a social worker and all they do is solve other people's problems and sometimes feel like, well, who's really dealing with my problems? Um, and they have something like that. When they put on a mask and disappear into this other character, even if that's only for 10 or 15 minutes, not unlike you know, the duration of reading a comic from cover to cover, and you inhabit this other space, that can be a great release uh, to just dabble in that other universe for brief periods of time and then, and then come back to it. In the same way, I'm sure um, you experience that same thing uh, when you're on stage, you know, even if okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a 20-minute set right now, and I only get to be this for this limited period of time. It can be very healthy to oh, yeah. escape. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it, sometimes it's hard. You get, you get caught up in the middle of something, and you're so deep in it that you don't realize that you need to take a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, that's super important. And it's nice... It's nice for looking at, at it from the flip perspective to be able to sit down 
and read a story about a guy who's going through the same thing, but is going to keep trying. And it's on a fantastical level, so you get to experience problems and situations that aren't your own. Mm -hmm. One thing that I liked about this story that uh, is something I I sort of invented for myself uh, growing up, and still now, I'm a tremendous fan of the monkeys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I feel like the character of Tork in this is Peter Tork. <laughs> oh, um, just like a just like an, older, an like aged age. version of P- Peter Tork, right? This predates their comeback in the eighties. Yeah, um, yeah. through the seventies, kind of looks like him. Yes, like if you've seen pictures of him from the late nineteen seventies when he went hardcore into the hippie zone, it is not much of a stretch to think that this like a chance encounter with Peter Tork was like I'm going to make this guy. Uh, this cop in my story. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's there's that element of it, too. For me, as I'm reading it, I'm like, that's down on his luck waiting for the first Monkeys reunion, Peter Tork. Uh, <laughs> right there in the Falcon limited series. Um, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, though, that character actually did briefly exist prior to this in Daredevil. Yeah, I looked him up on ComicBookDB. I know, I know he pops up again in Black Panther, apparently, according mm-hmm. to the ComicBook di- database. Uh, like Christopher Priest kept on using him. Hmm. Um, but I, I was reading this and I, I have my own history for Peter Tork for, for Tork. For <laughs> it's Peter all right. Tork. That's who he is, Brett. Uh, I got, I, I totally got, and this might just be me like tr- wishing it, uh, a total gay vibe from him, which mm-hmm. I think would be fascinating because a, I like that in, uh, issue, issue two, when he wakes Falcom up, Falcon goes and takes a shower and Tork just goes in there with him and just sits on the toilet. <laughs> And talks to him. Now, he's not using the toilet. He's sitting on it like a chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I love um, the very last issue, the very last scene. After they've saved the day, him and is it him and uh, Falcon and Cap or just, yeah, they're mm-hmm. all like right. sitting, sitting around. And he's like, yeah, this is great. Having a beer with the guys. Cooling out. No women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No bimbos. No getting dressed up. No neckties. <laughs> like, he just keeps talking about like a beer with the guys mm. and and i love i i you know me thinks thou doth protest too loudly me being like <laughs> a gay man that wants to see more diverse representations of gay men in comic books i love the idea of a take no shit letterman loving yeah <laughs> super mm. super big david letterman fan cop being a gay man i love that now he's one of my favorite characters yeah do you have a new comics crush yeah be, well no he's not, he's not my <laughs> put type. him on the board he's definitely not my type oh, okay. he's way too uh musty. he's way too like chiseled i think cheekbones i've realized are a thing i don't like in my in my man what is <laughs> what is going on with me uh, uh I'm, having, I'm slowly having a weird breakdown this no year. i i am going to find a way to turn every conversation in every episode towards this because just watching you do it and then halfway through uh, you start to squirm out. about the fact that you're discussing talking this you're again? Like, i don't know isn't he wearing a letterman jacket at one mm-hmm. point at one point he is a indeed. late night i mean we are both former late show pages yep so we we i related to him and his uh idol idolization of david letterman yeah yeah uh i think he's wearing it in issue four which issue four is so such a wild romp comparatively like and what i like too by the way about the entire thing is that we slowly expand to this place like yeah he's fighting a sentinel earlier but there's still more of a street level threat by the time we get to issue four the legion have uh kidnapped ronald reagan have kidnapped the president and electro has decided to 
try to kidnap the president for himself. (laughs) (laughs) Electro, who has just sort of happened into the story almost by accident, uh, making some wild assumptions about seeing superheroes near him. He was clearly a paranoid man at the time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Issue four is fascinating to me because it, I think with how realistic they play everything today, you couldn't have a story where a gang just kidnaps the president. Yeah. It was a different time, to be sure. The early <laughs> 80s is uh, in a post 9-11 world like this story. Eh, it's a little tough to swallow. But uh, something about it, it does come off like the, vaguely believable, right? That he's coming yeah, into the yeah. area to do a fact-finding mission. He seems to be there uh, for PR and these guys who have kind of made that section of their neighborhood into a war zone. And it's their turf that they kind of run like – there is a little bit of credibility, and what I love, um, Electro is one of my very, very favorite Spider-Man villains. Um, Electro and Mysterio are my favorites, and uh, their costumes are insane. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. outlandish. And you have these really grounded stories, and then into the middle of it is the guy in the bright green and yellow with the starfish mask. Yeah. And uh, I love that about it, and I like that, um, despite the fact that I don't think uh, Electro is an A-list villain at all, um, he beats the Falcon. Like, yeah, here's another yeah. instance where the Falcon fails. Um, and then at the end, it was really great in that uh, he really gets to one-up everybody, even Cap. Thankfully, hey, it's his own book, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did like that, that um, the Falcon's very vulnerable, that he does fail. And I like this about the way that the Falcon is portrayed, op- uh, and I want to contrast it against the way that Priest often writes the Black Panther. Uh, the Black Panther would outsmart you before anything else. He, yeah. he, the Black Panther beat you a month before you met, and you didn't even know it. Yeah. Um, in, in some ways, I, I see a lot of parallels between the way he writes him and Batman. Yeah. Um, but the Falcon does not necessarily outsmart you. Um, he's, he's not Batman. He's not, he's not written in that way the way that sometimes the Black Panther, when I read some of those priest issues, I'm like, wow, like this is like uh, a, a politically charged Batman book in a way. That's not that's not what's behind what the Falcon does at all. Um, he, he's not an idiot. I'm not saying that the Falcon's written to be dumb, but he has a very specific way of solving problems that's very, very different from what the Black Panther would do. And I like seeing that strata. Probably, probably it speaks a little bit to what you were just saying, Brett. Like, you would not want to see all char- – like, if they wrote every black character in comics to be roughly the same. If every gay character is roughly the same, like, give me some diversity here. Show yes. me some strata. And I like the fact that I, I detected a real difference. And I-, I did not read Power Man and Iron Fist, but it- concurrent with this, though, I was reading X-Men. So the Falcon, Storm, and the Black Panther were three radically different black characters in comics um, at the yeah. time. yeah. yeah. I like uh, I, I like that too. It's, and then it, Luke Cage is also a fourth, a uh, hugely different character from all four of them. I love them all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, issue four is also when I think we get into the like really relevant political talk, <laughs> where they have the president like tied up, uh, and Falcon like they save him, and they're like, "Nah, you came here on a fact finding mission." And then President Reagan's like, "Yeah, I'll listen to you guys." And then he, like, listens to the Legion, like, all tell, like, their, what is happening in their life. Um, you know, here's Ree. She got pregnant when she was 13, and her pops threw out on the street. She was spending her nights on the A train when Falk found her. Like, and then, like, someone else was strung out in smack. And, 
and then Ronald Reagan goes and gets on TV and immediately does a, like an about face or whatever. Like yeah. he, he immediately is all about like sponsoring new legislation um, and trying to help people out. It, it, it was very, I think it's still very relevant. Like I, I feel like, especially with a lot of the healthcare issues happening right now, we're hearing so many of these personal anecdotes about people that are in these horrible situations. And you kind of wish that it was like this comic book where all you had to do was like, listen to them and all the, you know, all the people that were on the other side of the issue would just be like, Oh yeah, I listen to you. I, I have empathy. <laughs> yeah. This book is all empathy, which is, I like, I like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I left the four issues all together feeling very, very satisfied. Um, I was uh, un- renewed my love for the Falcon. Uh, well, of course I'm really, really eager to see the way that he's portrayed. Uh, in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, which is probably how most of the world is going to forever know that character. These four issues are the Falcon to me. Um, he has, uh, you know, problems like this, like, I don't have an alarm clock, so my police guy friend comes and bangs a pot in my hot apartment to wake me up. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, he saves Captain America, saves the president, and manages to do some real good uh, for the people in his neighborhood, and kind of fulfills what's set up early. Early, they say... You know, the Falcon speaks for us, and we trust the Falcon, and, and Sam Wilson is a force for good. And they set that up in the very first issue, and then they really do pay that off for you at the very, very end, that you see he is a, a real agent for change. Yeah. And I will say that, I, I mean, I have seen it. I saw it early. Um, I, I do think that Anthony Mackie is playing this Falcon. That's, yeah. That's what I think. That's terrific. That, uh, uh, that warms my heart. I, 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 that's what I think. I mean, I'm new to this miniseries. I haven't read it a bunch. But there is a certain part, like the, all the all the uh, essential elements that we've talked about, I I I got, and and also he's a great, he's he's so charismatic, he's gonna be a huge huge movie star, like yeah. he's great, the movie is great, I'm uh, yeah, <laughs> you can't even form full sentences to yeah. describe it. It's well, that this good. is where we are taping this before there will pro- there hopefully will be a midnight after show review, yeah, that will be going up before this episode goes up, so listeners will be. In a t- time traveling. Yeah, yeah, we're putting you in a time twirl. <laughs> mm. Well, I do want to go backwards in time with you a little bit to talk about something I heard on a previous episode of yours. Sure. Uh, you had talked a little bit about when the Star Wars adaptation probably came into the Marvel offices. And I want to share with you a conversation I had about a year ago with Larry Hama. Oh! Um, I was fortunate enough to have lunch with him because I wanted to talk to him about the way he wrote for giant ensembles like G.I. Joe, a real oh. American hero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, he's like the the master of writing for giant ensembles, and I wanted to pick his brain a little bit. And uh, he talked a little bit about how that ended up on his desk, the G.I. Joe thing. And what you guys were speculating about, um, he basically had confirmed to me when we spoke that those types of jobs, like a toy tie-in book or a movie adaptation, would come in, and everybody would kind of act like, oh, not me. I'm not, I'm not doing that book. Uh-uh, yeah. don't you put that on my desk. And... Uh, he said, you know, basically, like, uh, everyone else had said no. There was no one left, so he got stuck with that. Um, he'd already come up with the vast majority of the characters for a totally separate book that he was going to do and then just started adapting them to fit what had to be done to, to <laughs> no make the way. agreement with G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. Because that was part of Hasbro's plan. It was a three-pronged attack to relaunch the property. It had to be cartoon, comic book, action figure line all hitting simultaneously. That was their strategy. And... 
um, I got to hear some great stories. This is, this is just one of uh, many wonderful little anecdotes about that that he shared with me. There was a real pushback from Hasbro um, that they were not going to produce action figures of any of the villains. They were not going to produce any Cobra figures. Ugh. And they said, no one will buy them. They're the bad guys. Uh, and he, he said with, with tremendous pride and a very satisfied smile on his face, he said, uh, and about two years later, the Cobra figures were outselling the G.I. Joes. Yeah. Um, so. yeah. Cobra is so much cooler than G.I. Joe. They were badass. They were so well designed. I love like, all of those characters. That, that Cobra Commander design Ugh. is iconic. Uh, that chrome face is a, is a Halloween costume I want to do at some point. I have no idea how. Something I'll have to commission when I get a real person job. Okay, <laughs> that pays me money. A lot. Wait, of money. do you want a real person job? I want money. Okay, well, okay, that that, that makes. I sense. want to make at least sixty thousand a year. That okay. is all I want. All right, I would be satisfied with that at this point. That's fair. Let's talk about our taxes. Who's done our taxes? No. Who's done our taxes? <laughs> so that's that's uh, fascinating too. Uh, that. Well, that a that you got to have lunch with Larry Hama. That's mm-hmm. incredible. Because um, that guy, he really does. You know, we were talking earlier about each character having their own voice, and there's a guy who really knows how to do that. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you look at some of those issues of GI Joe, especially when they were getting close to the triple digits of that of that book. There were you're you're looking you're looking at maybe like twenty four characters running around in a single twenty page issue. Yeah. How right. do you how do you balance that? Um, <laughs> I love, I I I always love those stories too of when you go to someone and they go, oh no, that can't be done because that's not how it's been done. And <laughs> surprise, uh, it's it, that's not that's not the case. Right. I feel very much that way about our approach to making pro wrestling that that those types of things like well you know that's just not the way it's done kid like right and uh i'm sure everything that you're saying and that was formulated as rhetoric 30 years ago had anticipated things like the internet right i mean you took that into account didn't right you Um, you were sitting down and thinking about how we're going to communicate digitally with a tiny device in our pockets right you knew what the word digital meant (laughs) yeah (laughs) that it doesn't mean fingers Yeah, yeah fingerly fingerly or fingerly so, yeah, one other thing that had come up, you guys discussed at length, uh, a run of Flash books that yes. you really liked. Uh, and, uh, Alex Zalbin, a couple of ish- episodes ago, yeah. Right, that was a very fun one. You've had a number of episodes recently. That's why I emailed you guys a couple of weeks ago. I was like, <laughs> I need to be in these conversations with you. Um, uh, I, I came you. up uh, only with a cursory awareness of Barry Allen as the Flash. Um, by the time I started reading DC books, he'd been killed off in crisis. And so I knew him from the Super Friends, and I had watched the John Wesley Ship live-action series on oh, CBS yes. in 1990. But Again, even another that... one, or another one of those things of like when we were all younger in 1990, like we were like that's like water to a person who's thirsty, or yeah, or suffocating, yes. or not suffocating, yeah, parched. Exactly. And then along uh, came the Wally West Flash, and I had a couple early issues from that series when he, you know he descended from Kid Flash and took on the mantle, and uh, he struck me as a jerk. Wally West in the early issues. And I thought, oh. I, don't, I don't care about this Flash. You know, they all talk about how awesome Barry Allen was, and he was so great as the Flash and his legacy and the great uncle. And I wish I was reading those, because this new kid's kind of a jerk. <laughs> and then uh, 
I saw uh, by just flipping through one, uh, an issue, and this is maybe in the issue numbers 60 or 70, Mark Wade had come on the book, an obscure character that I only knew from a who's who in the DC universe, who <laughs> used to be called Quicksilver, but they were now calling Max Mercury. And I had loved that character in the issue of who's who that I had, and I had never, ever seen him in anything other than his entry in who's who in the DC universe. <laughs> uh, and I thought, I'm going to buy this. I can't believe there's a story with this character in it. I want to buy it. And it got me to read an arc that I think was called The Return of Barry Allen. That might have been the name of the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that, that was right around that time, too. Barry just, like, sort of mysteriously shows back up on their doorstep. Mm-hmm. And by then, The Flash had uh, kind of turned into a team book. Johnny Quick was in it all the time. The Jay Garrick Flash was in it all of the time. The yeah. Flash family had emerged as supporting players around Wally. So even though I still thought this character was kind of a jerk, I loved everybody that was surrounding him. But that story, which is uh, Mark Wade and Mike Waringo, if memory serves, uh, made that into the book that I could never miss again. And I stuck with The Flash for years and years thereafter because uh, I felt like I really went on that journey with Wally West. That um, he idolized Barry Allen in the same way that, like, I had been taught to idolize him by the way all the other DC characters spoke about him. Yeah. All these books, he was gone. Barry, Barry was dead. He was never coming back from the crisis and blah, 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 blah. And I missed Barry Allen. So when he came back in the book, I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. Now I can get into the Flash. The good Flash is here. And uh, I, I certainly don't want to spoil the story for people that haven't read it. But I went on the journey with Wally West. Um, maybe not not unlike the way some of the other weird characters that hooked me over the years, like like Hank Pym, where I was like, I so feel myself in that character right now and what he's going through. And even though he's doing things that I don't really agree with, like I, I'm invested in you. I'm going yeah. on this ride with you, Hank Pym. Um, I, I that that's what put me in those shoes with Wally West. And uh, then I stuck with it for for many 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 other years, including a period of time in college where I had so little money I could really only afford one comic a month. And that dollar fifty or whatever that cover price was at the time, the do the six quarters went to the Flash wow. because I yeah, I, I, I had big. to know what was going on with them. Yeah, that's a big price. <laughs> yeah, those uh, those runs. Particularly, like I said, I'm not I'm not that familiar with Mark Wade's stuff. I I am with the Jeff Johns run, which I loved, and I think at that point Wally West had evolved into someone who had been a jerk, but has I think been made a better person for the fact that he has this support group around him. Um, and slowly, it, it was. It was awesome to read a book that was supposed to be about one character and finding out that, you know, just because it's a solo book doesn't mean that that's the only person in that story. Yeah, I mean, the best solo books have, I mean, the Falcon miniseries had that. You had, like, I mean, Torque and Zeon, like, all these characters are characters, like, I would love to see more of. Right. And even Falcon as a, I mean, Captain America is a character that, like, also pulls people towards him, like the Falcon. Um, I think the, I, I could see that in the Falcon too. Like, I would love to see a book that's just Falcon teaming up with other Marvel heroes. Yeah, because I feel like he is the kind of guy that would know everyone. Everyone would like him. <laughs> mm. Everyone would want to hang out with him. I mean, yeah. he's in Mighty Avengers right now. Um, the the book by Al Ewing um, and Valeria Shitty is on art right now, and that that is like the all minority Avengers team. Yeah, that has you know Luke Cage, Monica Rambeau, 
Uh, the new oh, Power Man. I dislike that Monica Rambo photon or whatever they call her. Oh, jeez. Uh, Roger, Roger Stern's baby girl. Um, I really dislike that character. Uh, I love her. Oh, I love her. I think she's uh, Well, great. I'll tell you what. Uh, I was introduced <laughs> to that character uh, in Avengers, I want to say, like, the 240s, when the team was made up of, I think, like, the worst lineup the Avengers ever had. Yeah, that's a it weird era. Star Fox, Dr. Druid, yeah. uh, and, and, and uh, she was Captain Marvel at the time. Yeah. And maybe Wasp one or was two. Of, yes, you're right. Wasp was chairwoman, and Cap yeah. would like pop in and out, um, and uh, and the Black Knight. And I just felt like uh, I don't really like any of these characters. Like it just <laughs> soured me. Like I don't know much about Star Fox, but after reading a couple of those issues, and oh, Doctor, if Doctor Druid's got to be the worst. Uh, the, I don't know how to describe that. There's no character that makes me unlike a book faster. Oh yeah! Do- like the I had a full run of uh, solo Avengers. I don't know if you remember that book. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, yeah. At the in its dying days, it changed titles. But uh, the only time I ever would skip is if the backup story was about Doctor Druid. <laughs> oh And, um, and I, I want to share this story with you um, about Mark Grunewald. I don't know uh, if either of you have any uh, had any personal interactions with him. Oh no! No, he was uh, he was a per- to me he was the personality of Marvel Comics in the early '90s. Uh, he was always on the editorial pages, and everybody it would have if it wasn't the coolometer, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> well, everyone had <laughs> like he would pop up as reference in other people's stories, in other people's, in other offices of Marvel. Yeah, and he just he had this like. To me, as a, as a kid in Western Pennsylvania, he had this like mythos about him as like the the guy who would love to sit down and talk to you about comic books at any time. Oh yeah, is that is, mm. is that sort of accurate? That was my feeling, and uh, my correspondence with him was always just through the mail. I uh-huh. would write a letter to Marvel, and it seemed like it didn't matter what book I wrote the letter to. I would get a handwritten postcard back from Mark Grunewald. Oh, no way. Um, wow. So he would answer. You know, I would, I would write them books. I would write them two typed pages, single spaced. And I'd get a handwritten postcard back with like three or four sentences on it. But I was, it never ceased to blow me away that someone there really was answering me. Um, yeah. And when it would turn up, they used to have these awesome postcards with Spider-Man printed on the front. And the back was like the big Marvel M. Um, when that would turn up in my mailbox, I would about lose my mind. Um, and I can only imagine what the pile of mail that that poor guy must have had to go through was like. And I was like, well, today I'm going to crank out 500 postcards to kids, you know, wanting to know about <laughs> She-Hulk's underwear or whatever. In, um, <laughs> in addition to also, like, wasn't he editor-in-chief? Right. <laughs> like, right. And writing all those books, books too, yeah. and uh, everything else. So uh, I had a... Maybe twice a year I would get a postcard from Mark Grunewald because once I realized someone would answer me, my letter writing went through the roof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I want to say maybe Solo Avengers was around the end of the 80s. I'm, I'm guessing here like 1989, 1990 was when it ran. So I was 13 or 14 years old at the time. And uh, I had up till then the complete run. It had just changed titles, I think, to Avengers Spotlight. Um, so I maybe had three years of the book, and I wrote a short little review of every issue, um, just kind of writing like, hey, I really liked the way you did Hawkeye in this one, because Grunewald did, was on that book for a bit. Uh, uh, yeah. And then I would write, uh, you know, oh, I don't like Dr. Druid or, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, at the end, I, I wrote like a little asterisk, which was a trick I had learned from reading Marvel Comics when I wanted to make a footnote. 
And mm-hmm. I said, I'm sorry that I could not review issue 14 for you. It's the only one missing from my collection. And maybe a few months later, a sealed manila envelope comes to my house with Spider-Man on it and the big Marvel M up in the return address area. And the handwriting that now is very familiar to me, Mark Grunewald's handwriting, I could like spot it a mile away because I had all these handwritten postcards from him. And I opened it up, and inside was a full letter from him uh, saying how much he enjoyed reading my reviews, and it made him (laughs) laugh and everything else. And he said, I went into the back room and found the issue that you're missing. Here it is. And he sent it to me. Uh, And so I always felt that I had a very personal relationship with Mark Grunewald, even though I was probably just kid number 499 who he had to answer mail from. um, I felt like that was my friend at Marvel Comics. And when I would see, like, in Marvel Age, like, if someone drew a funny caricature, like, if there was, like, a Fred Hembeck drawing of what Mark Greenwald looked like, I felt like, oh, now I even know what he looks like. You know, all these other comic creators, except for Stan Lee, of course, are kind of faceless to me. I don't know who they are, but now I even know what Mark Greenwald looks like. And uh, I I felt a very personal attachment to him. And I was also very moved then when he passed away because I felt like that was my friend uh, from Marvel who died. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was tragic. That's such an amazing story. I love, uh, I just love like that, that that's what happens. The internet has, the internet has changed that. Like yeah. the internet in like the internet has changed it to where stories like that can happen every day. Um, but it's also not as special. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, not, not to like be like, Oh, everything's horrible nowadays. Um, but like a story like that is like, so much more special to me. Well, like... I think, too, because technology takes a lot of effort out of communication, in yeah. a sense. And there was, there was direct effort involved. He had to physically write that letter. He had to physically search for that book, and he had to physically address that envelope Jeez. and send it. There's, there's, a care, there's a care that goes into that. You can haphazardly answer an email, but... Yeah. Something like that, you you have to actually put time and focus into it. And I think that that's what makes that type of correspondence really special. And especially for, you know, a young teenager to be able to uh, to have something like that happen, that's, oh, man, that, that I mean, is... You stand for life. I mean, that's... Of right. course. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I think if that happened in 1989, that was 25 years ago. And I can tell you exactly where the box in the closet is where I still have all my Mark Grunewald postcards. Um, oh, so man. I, I think what, what you said about the effort that goes into that versus like a, returning a tweet or an email or something, which can be done relatively effortlessly in this day and age. Um, I've never, I mean, not that I can think of anyway, I've never like saved or printed out an email. Like, <laughs> I'm going to keep this for later because I always want a record of that. And I don't know if that's just the way the Internet's changed things. You feel like I'll always have access to everything always. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I'll just go on the Wayback Machine and find where this thing was exactly the way it was 10 years ago or whatever. Um, yeah. But it, it really did have an impact. And um, I'm sure you guys have probably discussed this uh, at length before. The fact that growing up, I always felt like the people at Marvel are my friends. DC might have characters that I know and that I love because I love the super friends and I had the superpowers action figures and I knew all those guys and everything else. But I had no personal connection to them whatsoever. 
Yeah. But I had a very personal relationship with people at Marvel, probably many of whom had no idea. Uh, <laughs> not unlike Mark Grunewald. Like I said, he probably had to fill out 500 of those postcards a day. But It's like everyone um, – no one got issue 14. I'm sending out so many issue 14s <laughs> all these kids. And you know, you know Mike, too, I, I have to pay you a compliment because you're, you're telling this story and, and, and I know that you put this type of care into your organization, too, uh, in terms of like – correspondence with your fans and stuff like that is this sort of the the origin of that uh, of that desire to connect with your audience in that way absolutely and i'll, I'll draw a, a direct comparison between the way we do that and something i learned from marvel um i always felt like when i would read stan's soapbox or those those kind of pages i don't know what they were called bullpen bulletins is that what that was the called? bullpen yeah. bulletins yeah, yeah. Um, you got a sense that uh, there were a bunch of guys and they were having fun in an office somewhere making stuff that you loved and that on those letter pages you could write to them and they would answer you. And if you were funny in your letter, they'd be funny back to you. Um, And uh, for that reason, because of, I I guess, a feeling that that cultivates – uh, whenever a fan uh, writes, regardless of who is answering the email, um, we always sign it. Uh, you know, if they write to us like, hey, my uh, when am, when is this being shipped? I made this order or uh, can I get this information about an upcoming event or anything else? Uh, we never just sign it, you know, like uh, Mike or someone else would just sign it. We sign it. Your pals at Chikara. Um, to me, that comes directly from the feelings that Marvel used to instill in me that. Somewhere laboring very, very hard to make something that you love a whole lot is a group of like-minded people who, if not for the distance between where I lived in Reading, Pennsylvania, and where they were in New York, we would be your pals. And I very much felt that way about Mark Grunewald, who was probably 30 years older than I was. Um, You know, we probably, uh, when we got down to it, other than our love of comic books, may have had nothing in common whatsoever. Uh, Like I described to you, I very much felt like he was my pal at Marvel, and um, he made me feel very, very special, especially because I'm sure you you probably read a letters page like this, too, where they would make a notation, or the editor would make a note that says, uh, Marvel does not sell back issues. If you missed this issue, you need to go to, like, your local mom-and-pop-type retailer and obtain it through them. Please don't call our office looking for a back issue because we can't help you. And I felt like this guy even kind of broke the rules (laughs) to help me. Uh, he doesn't even know other than I'm the annoying kid that writes him two-page letters that are single-spaced every month. He has no <laughs> idea who I am. Um, and I just, I just like the feelings that engendered in me, and I hope that we can impart that same feeling. Um, because uh, drawing a parallel again between wrestling and comic books, there is that feeling well, – I grew up as, as the own – like, liking comic books was not popular. Liking comic books made me a nerd. You did not want to see riding your bike down to Golden Eagle Comics on Penn yep. Avenue in West Lawn. You did not want them to see your bike parked out front of the comic shop because you were going to catch it the next day in class. Um, but in there, there were people that loved what I loved. And uh, I think it's really important, not just because we really believe that wrestling should be fun first and foremost, but that you know that uh, if you love this weird thing, we love it just as much as you do. And that's totally okay. Uh, it, this is a safe place to enjoy that. In the same way that I can come uh, onto this podcast and really be a geek about having lunch with Larry <laughs> Hama or a handwritten postcard from 25 years ago I keep in a very specific shoebox. 
because <laughs> because here I can uh, indulge in that because you guys love the exact same things that I do. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's a I think that's a hell of a note to go out on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, Final thoughts on the Falcon. I definitely think that if you haven't checked out this miniseries, you definitely should. It's in a really nice um, trade paperback. I mean, like I said, um, when we picked this, I was kind of freaking out because it has never been reprinted. We were going to try to get the single issues. I have issue one. Uh, And then I looked on Amazon. I was like, oh, with the movie coming out, they have released it finally. Yeah. Uh, And it's a really nice collection. Again, like if you if you go see Captain America, the Winter Soldier and want more Falcon, definitely pick up this trade paperback called Avengers Falcon. Very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it has everything you need to know. It has not only his first appearance, three-part storyline of Captain America, it has the miniseries, it has his first ever backup feature, and it also has his first ever solo full-length adventure, and then it also has the, I think, three-part backup uh, strip in Captain America when he ran for Congress, which was, I think, before the miniseries. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a really good thing. You should go and buy it through our Amazon links. Yeah. Two commercials. Uh, I'd, uh, I mean, we'd both uh, love to thank you so much, Mike, for coming on the show tonight. Uh, and thank you for suggesting this book. It's, it was a lot of fun to read. Well, thanks. I'm glad you guys were game for it, and I really enjoyed it. And I hope uh, at some future point we can get back together again and talk about the stuff that we love. Oh, oh, of course. We, uh, that's, that's one of our favorite things to do. It, uh, <clears throat> from that uh, time on my Swatch Watch here, it looks like it is plug time. So, Mike, please plug away. Let us know where you are socially, where we can find you, what's going on with Chikara, etc., etc. Well, the fun-filled Lucha Super Show that is Chikara is hitting the road big time in 2014. We've just started rolling out our tour dates. So uh, if you want to stay attuned to where we're going, ChikaraPro.com has all that useful information, including a very handy recap of what's happened over the last year if you want to get all caught up with our continuity and all kinds of other great stuff. We just announced, uh, for those that can't join us live when we kick off Season 14 on Sunday, May 25th, If you can't be there with us in Easton, Pennsylvania at the Palmer Center, you can stream the event live. We will have an iPay-per-view. And again, all that information and a whole lot more is over at ChikaraPro.com. You can follow me online at Twitter, where I show up like once a week and talk about coffee or other podcasts that I make. That's (laughs) at Mike Quackenbush. And I do get to talk superheroes, pop culture, and a lot of coffee and complaining on a podcast I make with my lifelong best bud, Clayton Morris. That's called The Grizzly Bereg Cafe. Awesome. Yeah. Check all that out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you liked what you heard here today, folks, please dive into our back issues uh, at com, where you can check out. Uh, you can check out when we read Quantum and Woody with our friend of the show, Nicole Dressel, who you might have seen in a couple of episodes of Comedy Central's Broad City this past season. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's where she's been on television. Yeah. Uh, and comedian Drew Johnston from The Chris Gethard Show. Which Indeed. could be coming to Comedy Central at some point. That's right. Um, and you can also check out our most recent, or very recent episode, rather, where we talked about The Flash with Mr. Alex Zalbin. Yeah. A lot of a lot of good stuff. Go on, hop in there. You can also talk when we talked to wrestler Christopher Daniels about Thor, God of Thunder. Yes, mm. yeah, that was a great conversation and as well, and some and some X Men stuff too. Yeah, a little uh, bit of X Men leaking in there. <laughs> uh, while you're at Matt and Brett Love Comics dot com, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can click on the Who Loves Comics tab to learn about all of our social media feeds. Please email us, tweet us, Facebook us, what have you. We want to bring the mailbag back, so we'd love some correspondence. 
Yeah, and like I've said a bunch, please, if you want to check out any of the books that we've ever read, go and make sure you click on our show notes and buy them through the Amazon affiliate links. It costs you nothing, and it steals money from Amazon. Indeed. Which is what we like doing. <laughs> and guys, you are our best spokespeople, so if you like what you heard today, please uh, tell a friend. Hijack the airwaves of your television station. I'm glad you said uh, airwaves and not airplane. Because well, if know, you're able to get into an airport, if you're able to get into stop. an airport and get stop on a plane, uh, tell I people don't. they can't leave until they check out Matt and Brett Love Comics. I shouldn't have taken it down that road. It's, um, well, if it's, you, this is your fault. This is on your head. Uh, if you fancy what you've heard here today, go to, Am- uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review there. It helps us out in ways we don't understand. And as always, thanks to our producer, Ben Nergeeb, who is the... Is he the torque to our falcon? Yeah, I think he's the torque to our falcon. He comes in and bangs some pots at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Uh, yeah, thanks again to so much, Mike. Thank you, guys. Yeah, uh, until next time, this is Matt. And this is Brett. And we love comics. Yes, that is true. What did Larry Hommett eat for lunch? <laughs> <laughs>